This week, we begin out west, where a man decides he must remove the devil living inside his roommate. Then, we move east, where a small town is rocked by a gruesome murder. Welcome to episode 53 of Texas 1031. Hey guys, this is Hannah. I wanted to do a little intro preface to uh, this episode before you start listening to kind of explain what is going to be happening on the recording. So essentially, Cassie and I got together last week to record this Halloween episode, and when I went to edit it, I realized that it had this massive echo reverb happening on the entire recording. So what I did was... um, I kept the original audio, but I muted either person when they weren't telling like the other person when they weren't telling their story. So on my story, I muted Cassie. So it's just going to be me talking. You can kind of hear her in the background um, with a little bit of audio and then vice versa on her story. Um, Essentially, it just makes it a little more tolerable to listen to. And um, we couldn't get together to re-record it with a new mic. And so this was the best that we can kind of come up with in short notice. Um, But yeah. That's that's pretty much the gist. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoy it. Okay. Hey everyone, this is Cassie and Hannah. This is Texas 1031 and this is a Texas true crime podcast. Mm-hmm. Welcome to our technically fifth because we skipped last year. It really is fourth, but for fifth, fourth annual, fourth, fifths annual <laughs> Halloween episode. Halloween episode. Yay. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. It's terrible. Oh, hey, and that's the other scoop is that we are doing out of state murders. Oh, that's, right. that's the whole fucking point. I guess we should tell you all yeah. that. Not confuse you. <laughs> yeah. We've only done that like one or two other times before, but we decided this would be fun because I thought that my thing t- took place in Texas, but the killer is only from Texas. So ah. there's the confusion. So we just went with it. Okay. So picture it Los Angeles, California in the early 2000s. What a time. Um, The problem with this case, so the reports kind of differ left, right, like recollections, evidence are all twisted around. So if you, I want to just preface that if you go and research this case or listen to another podcast or watch another show about it, um, it's very inconsistent. So I'm going to try and give you the most consistent facts I could find. Anyway, uh, April 10th, 2002, around two in the afternoon, 26 year old, six foot seven, Antron Singleton would be spotted walking the streets of Los Angeles naked and covered with blood on his face and chest. Police would later note that he was barking like a dog, screaming, (laughs) screaming at the sky, pulling at his hair, mumbling and chewing on something in his mouth. Antron Singleton wasn't just some crazed homeless man or addict from the streets, but in fact, he was a relatively well-known rapper who had begun and uh, who had recently began to make a name for himself in the genre of horror core, which is like hard to say (laughs) horror core. Um, His performance name was Big Lurch, and he had just murdered and cannibalized his roommate, 21 year old Tanisha Yesias. 
Uh, Big Lurch had grown up in the uh, projects of East Dallas in the 1980s, 1990s. And in a YouTube video interview he recorded from prison, Big Lurch said that he really only had two options growing up the way he did. And those were either to become a gangbanger slash dope dealer or make it big and become a rapper. So he would inevitably take part in both of those options, the latter of which landed him in Oakland in the later part of the 90s. He would be one of three members of the hip hop group Cosmic Slop Shop. Again, hard to say. Uh, The group had mild success on the hip hop and rap charts rap charts of the time uh but big lurch really made a name for himself with his album titled it's all bad which anyway originally it was called something else but his record label changed it um because by the time of its release he was actually already arrested and in jail for his crimes so so his main claim to fame in the rap world were his songs texas boy and i did it to ya so i'll play um i mean because i don't really care I'll play a little clip from I Did It To You because that's like the main thing. If this picks it up, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. That might have come out really bad. Yeah, yeah. He talked. That's all he really like in that song, at least. Um, Yeah, he talks about Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, uh, Charles Manson, whatever. Just listing off people. He supposedly had like watched Silence of the Lambs like the night before or the week before he killed this girl, but. I don't know. That's a rumor. Yeah. So whatever. Um, that might have come. That song may have come out like super loud. So I don't even know if I'm going to keep it in there. But <laughs> regardless, we just listened to it. So um, anyway, where was I? Blah, blah, blah. OK, yeah. So rapping about serial killers, dismemberment, syringes filled with battery acid and fictional slasher villains is what he primarily became associated with. Um the irony of like his actions and his music is part of this case's like lore, if you will. So it just whatever. That's the only reason why it really matters. But um, Lurch is also associated with drugs, heavy drugs. Initially, Big Lurch smoked joints dipped in formaldehyde. Why would you do that? <laughs> also known as smoking wet or water. Very confusing. Yeah, my like trying to like decode his wording from this youtube video it's so embarrassing so i'm like what does this mean <laughs> type in <laughs> yeah um but essentially smoking embalming fluid aka formaldehyde produces a very similar high to that of pcp which uh big lurch would soon become very severely addicted to in 2000 lurch would get into a horrible car accident which resulted in him breaking his neck and reports, again, they kind of differ on this uh, incident. Um, I've read that he was out driving in his mom's car to attend, like, his grandmother's funeral in Texas. I've also read that he was in his car and hit by a drunk driver while he was out for his birthday. I'm really not sure. But regardless, from here on out, Big Lurch turns to PCP to ease the pain from the accident. He would do PCP so often and in such great quantities that he would uh, be further hospitalized several times for PCP-induced psychosis. So if you recall, the episode with uh, Crystal Richardson and Cedric Owens kind of makes a little more sense, Mm -hmm. potentially. Episode 42. I wrote it down. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, Big Lurch was still recording music during this time, but according to him, he was also dealing dope and kind of in charge of running this dope house slash apartment in L.A. So again, according to him, he would let fellow. So he was associated with uh, the Bloods. Um, and he would let fellow blood stay at this apartment that he supposedly shared with his uh, music industry friend, Thomas Moore, and Thomas's girlfriend, Tanisha Esaias. Um, it was a big party house, a lot of gang activity, drugs, guns, etc. Um, he explained that essentially it was a really rough time for him in California, and he was having to do a lot of stuff differently in terms of gang life there as opposed to Texas. He was dealing with Crips. Uh, left and right and essentially running this trap house you know for these fellow blood members was a favor and unfortunately this only seemed to fuel his appetite for pcp and i mean his access to it was like unlimited so in order to maintain his lifestyle and cope with the pain of his neck injury he kept smoking pcp but as time went on what began as a pain management thing sort of turned into just like all day everyday recreational use he was getting high and staying high for weeks at a time not eating just totally out of his mind so the afternoon excuse me the afternoon of april 10th was a rough one uh big lurch had been on a serious pcp binge for days and days um he he would claim that the drugs were being fed to him as part of this sort of record label image that he was supposed to maintain and they also said that it could have been some extra serious batch of PCP that was being given to him by the Crips on purpose to get him fucked up, fucked up, but who knows? Um, so unless we were truly there, we won't really know what transpired besides the obvious influence of PCP being involved. Um, so fast forward to Big Lurch being found in the streets naked and incredibly fucked up. He would claim that he, air quotes, wakes up from a two week long PCP induced coma he finds out that he's been in L.A. County Jail and be, is being charged with murder. The details of what most likely occurred in the apartment came out during his trial. So let's go over that. I know I'm kind of like just skimming over it, but there's not too much on this case. Investigators and forensic and medical experts would provide evidence and testify that Antron Singleton, under the influence of PCP, most likely began to hallucinate and became enraged while in the apartment. There had been a big party the night prior, and Thomas had evidently left the apartment that morning. So Thomas was the guy he shared the apartment with or whatever. Um, So at the time, it was just Big Lurch and Tanisha. It is alleged that Lurch bashed Tanisha in the back of the head with a child's razor scooter to incapacitate her and then grabbed a kitchen paring knife and began attacking Tanisha. I had a razor scooter and I loved that thing so fucking much. <laughs> um, anyway, not the point. Reports claim that Lurch had broken Tanisha's neck and jaw and fractured one of her eye sockets. I actually found a picture of it. I kind of found it last minute, but it's it's pretty awful. I don't think I'll post it because I honestly can't determine if it's real or not. It looks like her, but like you just don't see it everywhere Like when you look up images, so I just can't. I'm not sure about the credibility, but if it is true, it's awful. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, more horrendous, however, is that he allegedly cut into her stomach, hacked open her chest, and successfully removed her right lung. When found, her chest was open, exposing her internal organs, and pieces of her right lung appeared to be torn and chewed. A three-inch blade was found broken off in her shoulder blade. Ugh. Uh, tooth marks were also found on her face, affirming the assumptions that he not only ate her lung, but her cheek. 
this act of cannibalism was confirmed through medical testing done on Lurch after being arrested and transported to the hospital. His stomach contents were tested and determined to have human tissue in it that was not his own. In June of 2002, Antron Singleton pled not guilty (laughs) (laughs) by reason of insanity. This was immediately thrown out due to California laws refusing to allow the insanity defense when drugs are involved. So according to Big Lurch, his trial was completely mishandled by his lawyer, Milton Grimes. Believable. Yeah. He trusted Grimes because he was signed to his record label. And Lurch alleges that Grimes' strategy was to make him appear as deranged and po- as possible to ensure a successful not guilty plea on the reason of insanity. So essentially, there was no backup plan for his defense if the insanity plea fell through. And it did, since it did fall through, he was fucked forever. So uh, according to the Los Angeles Times, the following year uh, of his arrest on, well, excuse me, reep, reep, reep. according to the Los Angeles Times, the following year of his arrest on November 7th, 2003, a jury deliberated for less than an hour and found Antron Singleton guilty of first degree murder, torture and aggravated mayhem. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, before we move on to questions and theories, this story has a bit of a twist. What? Yes. So Big Lurch has always maintained his innocence when it comes to the murder of Tanisha Yesias. Even more, more interesting is that Tanisha's own mother believes that he is innocent as well. This is primarily based on all of the evidence or rather the lack of evidence at the house slash crime scene. So as we've discussed, Tanisha was attacked with teeth, knives, razor scooter, back of her head, whatever. When tested, the bloody fingerprints found on these weapons were not a match to Big Lurch. And conveniently, they're omitted from everything when it came to the trial. The blade that was snapped off in her shoulder uh, was also never matched to any person in particular. They never found a person who claimed to own it or any physical evidence left on it to match anyone specific besides Tanisha. There was also uh, an issue with the bite marks on Tanisha's body. The testing results showed that they were not a match for Lurch's teeth, but this was allegedly not investigated any further. He said that he had a blue-nosed pit bull living with him at the time at the house, and he thought that it was likely that the bite marks could have uh, been attributed to the dog being left in the apartment with Tanisha as well. Like the dog came and chewed on her or whatever. Additionally, Lurch was depicted as naked and smothered head to toe in blood. Um, instead, the photos that exist, which I have them, along with testimonies of those who claim to have witnessed him soon enough after he began walking around on the street, saw a blood smear on his chin and slightly on his chest. Like it wasn't just like, oh, this carry, you know, yeah. blood bath all over him. Right. Yeah. Um, Also casually looked over is the fact that by the time police arrived, the apartment, normally known to be this gang-affiliated drug house, was left empty, aside from Tanisha's body. Everything that Thomas, Tanisha, Lurch, and the party attendees had there, from the guns to the drugs to their fucking dogs, were all gone. This is a direct quote from Tanisha's mother. There was evidence, footprints, fingerprints on the doors, bloody fingerprints, a shoe at the back door. And it's like, where did all the evidence go? It was DNA. Whose DNA was it? They said the DNA came up lost. End quote. Another direct quote, but this one is from uh, an article on okthough.com, which is kind of funny. It was just really precise and I didn't want to paraphrase it. So, quote, the party attendees slash gang members fled with no allegiance to Big Lurch. The court didn't seem 
didn't see them to be worth the manhunt. Their relationship with Lurch was likely bound by mutual interests and hobbies, as well as taking a flyer on the chance to mooch off of his secondhand success. Their true colors were exposed when given the chance, as they saw him as a scapegoat and jumped on it. They may not even have stopped at leaving him stranded, but also fed him chunks of her flesh and organs, the ones found in his system afterwards. This seems all the more likely when considering that investigators found an unrealistic amount of liquid PCP in Tanisha's system. It was a dosage that a human simply cannot manage, not to mention it was ingested as a liquid while the drug is designed to be smoked, usually through smoking a cigarette. These are all factors that have convinced Stinson, Tanisha's mother, that Lurch did not murder and eat her daughter, end quote. So the belief is that Tanisha was forced to ingest this liquid PCP. She was then tortured and murdered. Crucially, however, the biggest twist in this case is that the main suspect in her murder is Thomas Moore, her boyfriend. So this just gets crazier. So Tanisha's mother wholeheartedly believes that Thomas Moore planned this out and killed her daughter and framed Big Lurch for the crime. So as mentioned before, um, it was noted that Lurch had been on a drug binge for multiple days and he was possibly being forced to do more and more drugs to get him to this certain state of mind. A quote from Tanisha's mother. Her boyfriend was a gang member. I believe that he is the one who set all of this up. He was beating her. She had her stuff packed, ready to leave the day this all happened. To me, he didn't have a fair trial. There's no way he could have done that work because the way she was so messed up, hatred had to have been there and Lurch didn't hate her. In an attempt to recall any memories of the party or the moments leading up to the death of Tanisha Yesias, the only thing Lurch remembers is that he claims to he claims he had truly believed that the world was ending and he was supposed to find the devil before the end of the world. And that's the murder of Tanisha Yesias. Oh, my God. Yeah. So questions and theories. Like the the whole she was found by a friend. So the again, the reports differ, blah, blah, blah. I know. But some people say that she had gone to the party the night prior, left and then came back the next morning. But if she lived there, why would she have left and then come back the next day? That doesn't really make any sense. And she already had all of her shit ready to go. So, again, why would she come back to check on her boyfriend if she was ready to go? I don't know if there was any camera footage or if anyone could corroborate his alibi or like where he was at. Was he at work? Whatever. But I think that it seems it could be likely that they planted or planned all of that or they meaning like other gang members or like Thomas could have been switching sides. I, I have no fucking idea. Yeah. Or he could have been super fucked up on drugs, too. And this all went down. But for the crime scene to be left the way it was and the evidence matched nothing of his. Right. That's just like, well, fucking obviously that's retrial at least or redo the evidence testing. But the evidence is gone, right? Yeah. I mean, they have like fingerprints and so forth, but they they the DNA like the mom said it's like it was all lost or whatever. Well, because even the the article stated, like, you know, the courts aren't going to go track down these other gang members and roommates. Like, it's just easier to be like, well, you were there. You have her lung in your system. You You probably did it. Yeah. And that looks true. But it also kind of looks. How did he get everything cleaned out of there? None of the evidence matches him. Someone could have easily fed him all that. And he doesn't remember. Absolutely. Or he could have. She could have been dead on the ground. 
and she had been tortured and killed by someone else and he picks up whatever's on the ground thinking it's food like i have no idea yeah i i just think that like oh my god (laughs) wow that's so weird i think that the it was a classic oh i'm breaking up with you i'm ending the relationship move of a controlling and abusive man saying no you're not anyway I'm, I don't know how he, I don't know how Thomas Moore has escaped this investigation. For real. I don't know if it was just shoddy police work or yeah. just oversight or whatever. There has to be some sort of reason why he wasn't. Yeah. So oh. do you have any other questions or theories? Uh, no. Sorry, that was fast. No, it was like a fucking, it was a roller coaster. And I was like, wow, how have I never heard? This is fucking one. Yeah. No, we didn't. Maybe, maybe not. So, this is the story of Scott Shanahan, but really Dixie Shanahan. What a cute name. She I know, Dixie Shanahan. Um, so what does death smell like? The human body releases, you know, many gases, chemical compounds, all during the decomposition process. Some of these and their smells, and I got this from a website, which I found out. I just, like, clicked the first website. This is a website for a crime scene cleanup, basically. Just, like, call us. Yeah. (laughs) So um, some of the smells are, and uh, chemicals, whatever. Cat, this is going to be awful for me to pronounce all of these. I'm just staring at this first one. Cadaverine and putrescent, which smell like rotting flesh. Scattle, skittle, scattle has a strong feces odor. Oh, scat. Scat. Mm-hmm. Makes go. sense. Indole has a mustier, mothball-like smell. Hydrogen sulfide smells like rotten eggs. Methanol, uh, methan, methanthiol, whatever, smells like rotting cabbage, which is Ooh. awful. Dimethyl disulfide and trisulfide have a foul garlic-like odor. Odor, and those are just some of the you know over thirty different gases and compounds. So decomposition begins immediately after death, and imagine that odor emitted from a body left to rot for over a year. Like in the out in the open, just in a bedroom, left to rot picture the mattress (laughs) so this is the story of the murder of scott shanahan but let's get one thing straight right off the bat scott shanahan was an awful abusive monster of a human being i will go as far to say he was a piece of shit he and his murderer dixie shanahan um now known as dixie shanahan duty met (laughs) 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 d-u-t-y oh yeah dixie duty isn't as cute scott and dixie met while dixie was 14 and still in high school and he was around 1920 so pretty fucking gross right off the bat so dixie was born in 1967 and unfortunately was no stranger to abuse in her life um she had suffered um sexual assault prior to meeting scott around 1984 is when they met so her mother was leaving the person who was uh, her abuser and moving away from the small town that they lived in. But Dixie did not want to leave. So Dixie moved in with Scott and his mother. So she lived there while um, she lived in their home in Defiance, Iowa, a town of just under 300 residents while she finished high school. 
300 residents. Can you imagine? I had 700 people in my graduating high school class. Like, what? Oh, yeah. They had a high school probably in the same building as their middle school and (laughs) elementary school. So Scott was known around town, (laughs) town, to be a spoiled brat with a temper. Yeah, town. But when his mother died in 1994, they had been together for around 10 years at this point. He was then known around town to be abusive as well. Scott and Dixie were married in 1995, shortly after his mother's death, and had their first child in around 1996. So the beatings got progressively worse as time went on. Before they got married, Dixie said that he would slap her around, um, kind of throw things at her. He had an awful temper. When she got pregnant, he began actually, like, really beating on her, and that just kind of kept ramping up from there. This guy's a real fucking peach. So... Dixie, do-do-do-do-do, Oxygen wrote in an article, so we'll put our sources, I got my sources from like Murderpedia and Oxygen, like I said, this was an episode of Snapped, some of these direct quotes were just too good to parse up, so there's a lot, if you do come across these articles, like, you can, I'll be your audiobook reader, yeah, 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 (laughs) this isn't investigative journalism, we're just amateur podcast people, so shut up. So Oxygen wrote in an article, quote, while uh, when she was pregnant, she had a black eye, um, a quote. Oh, my gosh. I can't speak. Okay. This is because I'm sick. <laughs> Just going to scream into the mic all day. Uh, so a co-worker uh, told Snapped. She said that she never said that it was Scott, but people knew it was him. According to attorney Stephen Japunich, 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 yeah, Dixie became Scott's slave. And a neighbor is quoted as saying he just took over her life, wouldn't let her have friends. So on May 31st, 1997, Scott beat Dixie while they were driving and then kicked her out of the car. She walked to a payphone and called her coworker for help. Quote, I told her that you need to call the cops, said this coworker. According to the L.A. Times, he was charged with a misdemeanor domestic violence for, quote, striking his wife in the face with a closed fist, bloodying her lip and blackening both eyes. He spent two days in jail and was prohibited from seeing Dixie. But within weeks of his release, she wrote the court asking for the restraining order against him to be lifted. This is a pattern that keeps happening every single time he's put away or something. The punishment like doesn't work. And then he just hounds her, hounds her, hounds her, hounds her until she relents and gets back with him. So on September 8th, Dixie returned to police and reported an an assault made by Scott on July 27th of that year, 1997. So July 27th to September 8th. She said he threw her out and would not let her take their baby and that she feared he would flee with the child. Dixie reported that she would not leave the house without the baby and threatened to call police, which threw Scott into a tirade. Scott reportedly grabbed her by the hair and began to beat her with a metal object and threatened that if she called the police, he would kill her. Dixie was bleeding from the head from the assault, and Scott pulled all the phones out of the walls, so she could not get away long enough to report the incident. So from July 27 to September 8, she was basically a prisoner in her own home and devastatingly injured. <laughs> like, oh, my God. She also informed the sheriff's department that she was two months pregnant at the time with the couple's second child and feared a miscarriage if assaults continued. Scott was arrested that day and charged with second-degree domestic abuse assault. I will say this about the police. They are, like, listening to her and charging him. So 
On February 23rd, 1998, Scott was convicted of the charge and uh, the second degree domestic abuse charge and sentenced to two years in prison. But the sentence was suspended. So in each of her husband's arrests, Dixie wrote letters to the judges. Oh, well, this is why. For leniency. She was, she was fucked up. So he served only four days in jail and was ordered to pay a $1,000 fine, attend counseling, and surrender his firearm. But the abuse continued. Yeah, at least they took his firearm away. One of them. (laughs) The abuse continued, but it wasn't until two years later that a friend of Dixie called the police for a welfare check on her friend. Brenda Johnson was actually scheduled to help Dixie pack up her things so she could move to Texas, far away where her family lived. But when Johnson arrived at the house, no one answered. Dixie's car, uh, both Dixie and Scott's cars were parked outside, so she grew worried, remembering that Dixie once told her Scott tied her up and left her in the basement. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. I read in some other places, and I don't know if it was the same incident, but he would tie her up with wire hangers sometimes. This guy's a fucking monster. He's a fucking monster. He deserved everything that came to him. <laughs> So when deputies uh, arrived at the house, they got no answer. They retained a key and entered to find the whole family family present, including Dixie, who had two black eyes. Scott was charged with third-degree domestic assault, but Dixie refused to cooperate, and the charges were dismissed. She did move to Texas, but Scott would call her every fucking day, pester her, and she later returned to Iowa, reunited with her husband. On August 30th, 2002, Dixie Shanahan had enough. She shot Scott Shanahan in the back of the head in the couple's bedroom. She then boarded up the bedroom, blocked the door with towels and chairs and boxes and things, and moved along. Nobody in their small town seemed to care that Scott had disappeared. In the following months, Dixie had a charade to keep up and an odor to keep hidden, as we learned up top. Oh, yeah. A concerned citizen did end up calling the sheriff's department in July of 2003, almost one full year after Dixie shot Scott, concerned about his disappearance. Dixie's story was as follows. She said her husband left her in August 2002, moved away to Atlantic, which is about 45 minutes away, uh, and she had not seen him, but she'd heard from him in February 2003 when he called to see if he could be present in the delivery room for the birth of their daughter, Brittany, um, their third child, who was born on March 1st. Yeah, March 1st, 2003. Um, Dixie said she denied access. Scott became angry, threatened to hire an attorney. But then that's it. That was the last she'd heard from him. But we'll back up a bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially from a guy, like a whole fucking year had gone by. She's like, Everyone hated, everyone hated him. Everyone knew he was a bad guy. No one cares. So we will back up a little bit because Dixie had began running out of money, obviously, in the months after Scott's murder. Um, they had inherited and were living off of $150,000 that Scott's mother left them um, when she passed away in 94, I believe. Yeah. But Dixie began bouncing checks, signed with Scott's name, and selling his belongings and property. She started a new relationship as well. Nine months after shooting Scott, Dixie met Jeff Duty at a picnic. Um, he did visit her home often, but when he asked about the room Scott's body was decaying in, Dixie said she just had some bad memories and didn't use that room. Dixie said there was never a smell 
It was just a mystery room that no one ever went in. So back up to two, uh, 2003, July 22nd, this is when that concerned citizen we talked about called the police who then sent Deputy John Kelly to the house to interview Dixie. She gave the story of Scott's abandonment, but then the following day, she went to the sheriff's office to inquire about the search for her husband, why it was happening, yeah. uh, whether or not she was being accused of any involvement. Kind of giving her own way. Um, but the sheriff assured her that she was not being accused of anything, and they were just following up on a concerned citizen's uh, phone call. The day after that, Sheriff Gene Cavanaugh traveled to Defiance, where they lived. When he arrived at the residence, he spoke with Dexie in the driveway, and she told Kavanaugh that Scott had beaten her up before leaving. He was mad about the pregnancy, but she didn't report this beating. She also stated that Scott called around Christmas of 2002 with a desire to get back together. So a little bit of a deviation for her original story that last she had heard from him was back in March. Yeah, February. Um, So when asked what money Scott would be living on, Dixie said that he replied, um, withdrawn all the funds from the inheritance account and took all the money away. Okay. I mean, it's the 2000s, like it, yeah. computers are starting to be a thing right, so they right. can track where funds are going. Yeah. So that was that was kind it's of a mistake. It is. It's very quickly. So in response, the Shelby Sheriff Department um, tried to track down Scott's whereabouts. Now they have enough kind of reason to believe like, OK, something's a fishy going on. We got to at least do our due diligence, yeah. which is more than I can say for a lot of really small town. Yeah. You know, it's just Especially when the guy's dead. right. Yeah. So I guess kudos for them for, like, doing their job. I don't know. Um, so they tried to track down his uh, whereabouts through job searches, banking records, post office box, and a call to the Atlantic City Police Department. Mm-hmm. Efforts found no trace of Scott in Atlantic or anywhere else in the country. So in response, or uh, on October 17th of 2003, which is, you know, a little over a month and a half after this this first welfare call happened, um, law enforcement officers from the Shelby County Sheriff Shelby County Sheriff's Department uh, and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation made an application for a search warrant to search the uh, resident of the St. Shanahan home. Wow! Uh, they wanted to search the residence. Property, vehicles for blood, body fluids, hair, fibers, DNA samples of Scott, as well as any computer hardware, printers, dangerous weapons, or Scott's body or body parts. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So the application stated such items were used or possessed with the intent to be used as a means of committing a public offense or concealed to prevent an offense from being offense <laughs> offense <laughs> an offense from being discovered and were relevant and material as evidence in a criminal prosecution so they are they can't find him yeah. anywhere they're like something happened to him we got to check yeah. the residence oh uh, no a concerned citizen I know who cares my nose is so itchy um yeah I I really wish I knew like because it's like we go into it a little bit like murder is bad murder is wrong this guy sucked he beat his wife every day it's kind of like but 
you can't just keep a body for in sure. a house forever. Yeah. Something had to give at yeah. some point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, the affidavit in support for this application for the search warrant made by the same law enforcement officers recited most of the above facts. This is where I copy pasted mm-hmm. from an article that we're going to have in the sources because it's just too detailed. Yeah. Um, stated that the defiance post office did not have a forwarding address for Scott and Dixie was picking up his mail. Um, listed Kavanaugh's contacts with Scott's friends and relatives and set forth the law enforcement officer's various attempts to locate Scott. The affidavit included a statement from one of Scott's friends stating he heard from a meter reader in defiance that a bedroom window was open in the Shanahan house all previous winter. So she was leaving that bedroom yeah. window open, so the Fair smell... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the woman who interviewed me for this TV show mentioned this meter reader and did mention that the meter reader smelled an odor. So the affidavit also stated that Scott's mutual fund, which was where all of the inheritance had been in, was depleted in August of 2002, and numerous insufficient fund checks were drawn on it in August and September of 2002, bearing Scott's signature. Um, Although it looked like the checks were signed by Dixie, so that's just kind of weird. Um... Further stated that Dixie had sold one of Scott's vehicles and perhaps of his shop building because he had he was like kind of a mechanic mechanic shop um, mechanic sharp. It detailed how Scott's bank account was frequently overdrawn, but it had been inactive. So money was not going into it, but money was trying to come out of it, oh, which yeah. is like, you know, an alive person wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. Um. Dixie had also been receiving public assistance based on the application she filed on September 11th of 2002, and the affidavit referred to the bank's more, excuse me, mortgage records, which included an October 2002 letter supposedly signed by Scott requesting the bank to add Dixie's name to the account, which would be super suspect because yeah. Dixie had no control over anything in her life, so he would never do that. Um <laughs> So finally, the affidavit confirmed that Dixie sold Scott's tractor and told the buyer Scott would never be back. Oh. <sighs> so her car was impounded for search and Dixie was dropped off at a friend's house. While there, Dixie allegedly said, police are going to find him. Ew. So she kind of admitted it to her friend. Yeah. She knew the jig was up. So meanwhile, law enforcement authorities began searching the home and realized there was a bedroom sealed off from the rest of the house. They removed debris like folding chairs, toys, boxes, and after all was cleared, they found a rolled-up towel underneath the bedroom door yeah. and a scented candle nearby. <laughs> all I've heard, all I've read so many articles, it just says, like, a scented candle. I'm, I'm just picturing <laughs> one scented candle. <laughs> the little engine here. that could... <laughs> really trying to cover oh up this God. fucking smell like so investigators picked the lock of the bedroom and when they opened the door a stench filled the air underneath the bed sheets lay scott's body decomposing dead from an apparent gunshot to the back of his head he was curled up on the bed as if he had been asleep with a pillow tucked underneath his knees but in between his knees yeah Dixie was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and said she shot her husband in the back of the head on August 30th, 2002, while she was pregnant with Brittany. 
According to her account, so she's admitting to the crime, this is her account of what happened. She woke up her two children, Zachary and Ashley, that morning and asked Zachary to go into the bedroom and wake up his father for breakfast. Scott told the boy that he didn't want to wake up yet, and after Zachary left for school, Scott woke up enraged that his wife didn't wake him before Zachary left for school. This guy's a fucking asshole. So the rage turned to violence, and Scott began beating Dixie in the kitchen, punching her in the stomach. Dixie said that he had wanted her to abort their third child, so kind of an attempt to do so right then and there. He then, again, ripped all the phones uh, out of all the sockets except the one in the bedroom. Dixie says she tried to run down to her friend's house, but Scott dragged her by the back of her hair, uh, by her hair back into the house. He then grabbed a shotgun, reached into the cupboard for two shells, and loaded it while she was on the ground. He eventually then left the kitchen, went back into the bedroom, put the shotgun on the side of the bed, and lay down. Dixie said she decided to go back into the bedroom to try to make a phone call. When she entered the bedroom and saw Scott move, she felt she was in danger. Dixie then grabbed the shotgun and shot Scott in the back of the head. The small town of Defiance rallied around Dixie Shanahan. Although she admitted to shooting her husband, many of her neighbors were well aware of the awful abuse she endured, and she felt they felt the murder was justified. They held fundraisers and posted helped post her fifteen thousand dollar bail. Holy crap! Yeah, yeah, Only good for 15, it's like good for those town people for doing that. And I don't know what you would expect bystanders to do especially when she goes to the police he gets arrested and then she asks for him to be i don't think it's like i'm mad at the community for just like there goes dixie black eyes again you know but also what can they do yeah it's a tough situation so her trial began on april 20th 2004 Prosecutor Char- <laughs> God. Uh, Charles Tommen believed Dixie grew resentful towards her husband, not because of the frequent beatings, but because her mother-in-law didn't include her in the inheritance. Tommen believes Dixie acted in a malicious fashion and that the shooting was premeditated. Rather than leave the house and remove herself from danger, Dixie went back into the bedroom and, quote, entered the lion's den, he argued. So this guy totally understands battered wife syndrome. Totally understands a victim. Just why can't you just get out? Yeah. Asshole. Sorry, Charles. You're an asshole. (laughs) For this case, you're an asshole. Prosecution also contended that the murder weapon was improperly loaded with one bullet that was the wrong size, causing the gun to jam after the first shot. He argued that Dixie lied about her husband, a gun enthusiast, loading the weapon since he wouldn't have made a mistake. Fair. That's fair. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I can totally see that. I can see that half of her story is true. So I think a good chunk of that happened. She probably did suffer a beating. And then like the uh, aptly named show, she snapped. She was like, I can't, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to, maybe he took out the gun to threaten her, but didn't load it. And so she's like, there's the gun. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So Dixie was represented by lawyer Greg Steensland and he claimed that she fired the fatal shot out of self-defense. After years of abuse, threats of death, fucking being oh, yeah. tied up, trapped in the house, 
defense contended that she had no alternative if she wanted to protect herself and her unborn child. Um, as for leaving the body in the bedroom for more than a year, Steensland argued that Scott still had control over Dixie even after his death, which is similar to the Susan Wright yeah. thing. Super similar. Steensland called almost 30 witnesses from their town, Dixie's co-workers, neighbors, townsfolk. They all testified about witnessing Scott's rage and Dixie's injuries and bruises. Right. All of them testified. I'm glad they did. I am too. Like no one else Yeah. <laughs> so jury kind of had to choose whether, you know, they were going to convict Dixie of first degree murder, but they were also given the option of convicting her of lesser charges like second degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, or even willful injury. So they kind of had a full like fucking whatever you want. Pick. Take your take your pick. Wow. So this jury, seven men, five women, deliberated for eight hours before finding Dixie Shanahan guilty of second degree murder. Okay. Sparing her from first, which is, yeah. you know, good. I don't think she should have really gotten that, but whatever. Um, she must, you know, according to Iowa law, serve at least 35 years of that sentence before she's eligible for parole. She turned down a plea bargain that would have set her free within a decade. Why is that? I don't know. Couldn't find anything more about that. I read the, like, fucking... I could probably find it more if, um... There's been motions for appeal, things like that. Uh... Um, oh, well, okay, so this says that she um, filed a motion for a new trial. Court overruled the motion on the same day. Court Why? sentenced her. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Dixie appealed. So Dixie raised numerous issues on appeal. They include whether the, dis the district court erred in overruling dis oh my God, Dixie's motion to suppress, whether the D.C. erred in overruling Dixie's motion for judgment of acquittal and for a new trial, and whether Dixie's trial counsel provided her with ineffective assistance of counsel. So, hmm. A lot of basic appeals. Yeah, I don't know how accurate the lesser charged thing was. Yeah. yeah, now that we're looking into it. Okay, whatever. Right. Research. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Dixie, uh, did it. So quote, uh, Steensland, her attorney was quoted as saying, this is a bad message to battered women who find themselves in an escapable situation. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Uh, Shelby County jury found Dixie then 36 guilty of that second degree murder on April 30th of 2004. Um, so it was a 10 day trial. It's very short. <laughs> the conviction carried a sentence of 50 years, making her ineligible parole before she served 35 years when she would be 71. But a month before he left office, former Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack commuted duty sentence, deciding she must serve a minimum of 10 years in prison. So at the time, he said he didn't come to the decision likely, but he called the nature of her former husband's abuse, quote, a contributing factor in the unfortunate series of events. I love that. Nice he, he called the, <laughs> the murder of a man an unfortunate series of events because yeah. he was such a piece of shit. This guy's great. It's, I don't know what his track record was as a governor, but that's a good decision. That's a big jump from 35 years to 10. 10. That's extreme. Huge. Yeah. 25 years. That's fucking, wow, it's 25 years. That's a lot. So um, Dixie 
has been serving her sentence. She's been repeatedly denied parole. She served that minimum of 10 years. She served it in 2014. Um, but she's been denied parole due to, quote, behavioral problems like sneaking gum into the prison that her husband brought her. Uh-huh. So, however, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in 2018, she was granted work release. So she is okay. now in work release. If you had to look it up like I did, Work release basically means that you go to work during the day at an approved place of employment and then you come back to um, jail to sleep and on the weekends <laughs> to yeah, continue out your like sentence. Special privilege of like yeah. Out and do something. So she does a lot of. Um, work in prison with the lawn garden she joined the women's quilting class um she belongs yeah quilt um she belongs to women helping others which is an organization in prison that makes item for items for children in need and she started taking some um college courses and hopes to have a social work degree when she leaves prison she wants to help other domestic abuse victims i know it's so fucking shitty it's I want to find out more of, like, why she's been denied parole, like, each time. I just yeah. saw that one example of, like, a behavioral yeah. problem. But that is the story of Dixie Shanahan Duty. Um, her children are in yeah. – mm-hmm, they're in custody of her sister who lives in Texas who seemed like she tried to help her as much as she could. Yeah, I mean, her sister even makes the drive from Texas to Iowa to help her kids visit their mother – Jeff visits her often. So, you know, but we're not going to say anything about Scott Shanahan because abusers don't get any sympathy yeah. from me. And I know the prosecutor was just doing their job, but the angle they went for yeah. just like she was jealous because she didn't get any money. It's like, I'm sorry. That's not what's oh, on her she- mind. <laughs> they, they had to contrive a story that was like anything other than this woman killed her abuser and right. set herself free because <laughs> that's what happened here. Yeah. And it's really, really sad that she's still in prison. Mm, boy. So that is the story of Dixie Shanahan. Uh, that's our that's our Halloween episode, yeah, friends. <laughs> so we'll be back with more Texas true crime at some point with more Texas true crime. Um, so if anyone's listening. Happy Halloween. But like for real this time. Happy Halloween.